Welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Hi, everybody. I'm not going to introduce myself today and say, hi, I'm Rich Irani and welcome to Rich in Life. I think that if you're listening to the podcast, you already probably know who I am. And besides, we pay a voiceover to do it for me. I mean, I think it was Madonna or Fran Dressner. I forgot who did that voiceover, but so I already have my introduction. So for the sake of my next guest, I want to make an analogy. So on a happy note, I want you guys to imagine that we have a civil war going on. And it's not between the races and it's not between religion. It's just between political parties. Imagine that there is one party that controls the airwaves and television and social media, and they're the party spreading propaganda about the other party, let's say party B. They're saying that they are racist and bigoted and they suppress women. And if they get any control in the country, the country is going to go terribly. They're going to destroy the country. So imagine if you hear this propaganda, and it's so jarring in the beginning, but as you hear it more and more, it gets easier to listen to. You just go about your day, you go to school, you go to the gym, and you go to work, but you still hear this propaganda on social media and on television that you know something has to be done about this political party B because they're going to destroy our country if they get power. Again, time rolls on, and you hear somewhere far, far away from you that there is a group now forming in certain places that are killing people from this political party B. So political A are now running around in these groups with machetes and spears and eventually guns and start killing their neighbors and their friends, people you went to school with, people that you went to church with, went to synagogue with, are suddenly now surrounding your house, ready to kill you, loot your house, and then burn it down. We know what happened before in Nazi Germany. And the world said never again. But guess what? Not even a half a century later, it happened again, where one million people in Rwanda were hacked to death because of the crime of being born into a certain tribe. My next guest survived and was left to tell her story. And the name of the book is Left to Tell. Her name is Amakoli Ilabegiza. She hid for 91 days in a tiny bathroom with six other women not being able to move, take a bath, and only flush when the other bathroom was being flushed in the house. Only one person knew that she was in the bathroom with these six other women, and it was the man that hid them. What got her through it was her faith in God, prayer, and forgiveness. So I want you to welcome my next guest. Emakoli, your book was so good that I felt that I was in another time zone. I totally would forget. My kids would come in and suddenly let, I, I'd be like, oh my God, yes, I, I, I have kids. There's a life. I, when I read your book, it was unbelievable because it really was written so beautiful, so beautifully. From the very first page, I had a lump in my throat and it continued throughout the book. But throughout the book, I managed to still giggle. I mean, you were funny. The pastor didn't realize he was funny, but he was funny too. <laughs> but in any case, it was beautifully written. Everybody has to read this book. It's called Left to Tell. And it's by Amakoli Ilabegiza. I have a question for you, Amakoli. Did you ever dream as a little girl growing up in Rwanda 
that you would ever be in a situation. I mean, based on what I read about your family, you had a lovely upbringing, a lovely house, lovely friends and family all around you. Did you ever think in a million years you'd have to flee from your home and hide? No, I really, no. And you hear that and I heard that in stories when you feel like, you know, there was wars before people tell, told stories. And I always remember thinking, what would I do? What book would I take with me? But it was almost like just imagination, never thinking that we, it doesn't exist. And I never even thought pain and suffering like that was possible. Yeah. Now you spent 91 days in a bathroom and it was with six or seven other girls. Yes, yeah, seven other women. We were seven eight. other women. You started off with six other women, but then they added another woman in. Yes. And it was a very small bathroom. And, you know, I don't want you to have to maybe um, relive and ask the question, but I think everyone's automatic thing is, how do you spend 91 days in a bathroom? And how do you use the bathroom? What happens? So I just want to read in a, a part in your book. Oddly, in the time that we were in the bathroom, I can't recall actually seeing someone else use the toilet, even though it was in the middle of our little space, nor do I recall being bothered by any odors. Our menstrual cycles came one after the other, and we perplexed the pastor with constant requests for more toilet paper. None of us were embarrassed by the situation, though. We learned to ignore these functions and forego the luxury of privacy, especially since it all seemed rather trivial in comparison to staying alive. That's one example of how great your book is, that you really explain everything what people are thinking as they're reading the book. Yeah, so through the 91 days, I mean, the, the, the craziest part for me is that you knew some of the people that were out to get you. I mean, you knew these were your neighbors and people that you grew up with. Yes, and it was so hard to reconcile, to think that these are my neighbors. One of the men who was outside looking for me, he said he wanted me to be the 400 of the people he was killing. He had already killed 399. He's a man who went to school with me. I can easily call him a friend. We never had a problem. So it was, it was hard, but yeah, that's what it was. And the amazing thing also is that uh, they killed your family and you still managed to, 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 and you didn't know it while you were in the bathroom, but you had a feeling that they were killing everybody with these machetes and the spears and eventually guns. And you knew, but you, what kept you alive and what kept you going was your power of faith and prayer, which I think that was the most incredible thing. And this is what I want people to take away, whether you're religious, whether you believe in God or don't. There is a power to prayer, is there not? Yes, there is a huge power to prayer. And knowing that, thankfully, again, whoever, how, how people believe, if you believe in God in any way, you know is a power beyond yourself and, and stronger than you. So to believe that somebody who is more powerful can actually, more powerful than any human, can actually and loves me and he loves each one of us, can defend me, it was really something I needed to be sincere with, I needed to accept. And that's what I thought about many times. And there were always two voices, one good and one bad. And to me, I took the good voice as from God and the bad from the enemy. So I, I would hear, I am with you. Don't doubt me. Don't doubt my love for you. Even if you are a sinner, I would love you anyway, because you are mine. So it was believing in that and praying, it was everything that saved me.
Okay, so I just want to go back a little bit. So it was in 1994 is when this genocide began. Uh, it was, I think, right after, um, it was right after, what holiday was it? Easter. Easter, that's right. It was right after the Easter holiday in 1994 that you went into hiding. You happened to have come back from university. You were with your family and your brother, Demensin, who, did I say his name correctly? And I love him. I miss him. So thank you both. I know. I love him too. I mean, I read about him in the book and then I saw the picture of him, both, both of your brothers. I mean, they were amazing people. And Demensin, when he took you to the pastor's house to hide, what was so incredible was that there were hundreds and hundreds of people coming up to Matabo where you were, that's where your village was, with machetes and axes. And, they, and I know the government supplied them with drugs and alcohol to make them more crazy. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's true. They did, um, and they, they went crazy. They were giving them food, and most of the people they were using were really some of the poor people who wanted all that. So they, I think, messed their mind up with, with drugs and with also lying to them, giving them money and food. Yes, because they shut down the country in order to start this genocide. And the genocide was between the Hutus and the Tutsis. You were a Tutsi and the Hutus were the other tribe. And even though you went to church together, went to school together, it didn't matter. It didn't. When the propaganda began, Mm -hmm. That is when the brainwashing set in, and that's when people suddenly, but it took a while. And this is what I said in my intro um, before the program is that, you know, propaganda is such a terrible thing. And I want to talk about it a little bit later with you, what you see going on in America. But what I said in the intro is that, you know, you listen to propaganda in the beginning, it's so shocking and jarring the things that they say. They said that the um, Hutus, the Hutus were saying about the Tutsis that you guys are cockroaches and you're snakes and you're going to kill them and they have to kill you first. In the beginning, it's so shocking, but as time goes by, it just sounds stupid and you forget and you go back to school, people go back to work and all this happens until one day they're coming closer and closer to your village. Yes, and, and these are people from my own village. But the radio, I remember, so the Hutu and Tutsi, they were the two tribes in kind of, I would say, in conflict. But the Hutu tribe, the, every leader, or the, the, everyone really, 99% in, in the government were them. So they were there for like a, over 30 years in the government. And they were, they, that time, they have started to say, well, if we don't kill them now, they might take over. So it was a kind of, let's kill them so we never have to share the power. It was terrible. So two years before the genocide, they created a radio where they used to insult us as Tutsis, calling us cockroaches, we are snakes. And you didn't know where to go. Where, who can you report to if already the, everything was really in their hands? So we waited, but again, a part of you is like, it's going to happen. They're going to kill us. Another time, how can somebody kill an innocent person who haven't done anything to them? So, and then it started, 1994, many people, the actually the president that died was a Hutu, and many people believe he was killed by his people so that they can have an excuse to kill everyone because as Hutu, he didn't want them to kill the whole tribe under his mandate. He knew the world would ask him. Another thing was, there are many good Hutus who were really not bad at all, including the man who was hiding me. 
So I saw the propaganda was more like, we, Hutu, we're going to kill you. So it made us scared as Tutsis, but there was not even half of the Hutus killing. But they succeeded, the, the, all the media, they send us to the stadiums, to churches, where they can find us. And then they would throw hundreds of grenades on the stadium where they run Tutsis because they were scared. Everyone was like, find them, kill them. So we didn't have a chance to think because it was almost like you were being laid and taught by bad radio, by propaganda, like you said. So what's amazing is that you know, when you think of Nazi Germany and you know, it was such a methodical, methodical way of killing people and it took so much time. They killed in, in Rwanda, they killed 1 million people in a matter of how, three, four months? Was it, or? Yeah. Is More that than, right? Yeah, actually, our war ended a little bit later because there were, it, there were some politics, they blocked the whole area not to, to, to finish. So the genocide ended a little bit to many, place of the country before 91 days, which was they have killed more than a million people. It was so well organized, it was horrible. So they made a, a group of three to 400 people in every single village being fed and again given drugs by the government. So every village, they would go home by home to kill people. So it took almost like a month to, to finish like a million people. And a lot of these people, like you said, we're not all bad. Like one of them was uh, uh, helping your brother. One of them was hiding your brother, but at the same time he went out and macheted people it was and chopped up people. I mean, I don't want to be so graphic, but I mean, for people listening, I want you to understand the gravity. So this is um, a, a young girl who grew up in a, in a community, in a community where they were God-loving, they went to church, they went to school, very respectful. And you came from a very nice family that had a home. I mean, I know people looked up to your, your father, Leonard. They looked up to him. They came to him for advice. And I know that they, you guys were also charitable. I mean, by standards of today, maybe where we are now, they weren't, you know, they weren't rich. But for your for your country where you were, your parents were considered affluent. Yeah, in my village that was really poor. My mom and my dad was a director of schools. My dad, my mom was a teacher, so that was big. Being a teacher, at least you you have a chance. You know, that was rich. But I cared so much. I remember any time there was a family, husband and wife that you know were having trouble. My parents just felt responsible to go to stand and, and, and be a judge and help them. Or a kid would drop out of school. My dad would be like, I need to go to talk to the kid and see what's going on in their mind. So they really, now I can appreciate them that they're not here. They were wonderful. So what, what shocked me also is that, that your father knew people in the government and he went to go talk to them. Your father was affluent. He went to go talk to somebody in the government and they assured him, okay, you know, you don't worry. And he went back home. And then when they came after him, they said, what are you crazy? Did you think you were going to survive? You idiot. Did you think they were going to survive? And these people came with machetes and chopped off limbs. They raped women. I'm sorry to be graphic, but it is in the book. I want people to understand. They raped women in front of their families. And then after they raped the women in front of their families and made them watch, they would chop off body parts and leave them there to see, watch them suffer and make the family suffer and then kill the family. It is so shocking because it wasn't just people. It was people you knew 
people that were in your homes suddenly turned on you. That's the part to me that is so shocking. It is really terrible and horrible how people can listen actually to uh, I, to leaders, you know? Yep. It, how people can listen and, and forget about who they are, the love in their hearts. And I think I learned so many things throughout that genocide. And one, the main thing I, I really learned was to think about, for me, to, to follow the instinct of my heart, to also question myself and say, where, do, where am I in my loving of people, my, my consideration of people? Would I change if somebody offer me or tell me this? And I needed to be strong enough to say, this is the person I, I am. I will never do such a thing. But good people did terrible. And then three months later, they're like, oh, one of the killers, I made him in the prison. And he told me, you want to know what is in my heart? I miss people I killed. I'm like, what? Because he's like, I don't even know why I killed them. And he said the first time it was hard. Second time he was like, like a, a stone, you know, he couldn't feel. But now three months later, he regretted. It was so matter of fact. That's what I don't understand is how it was so matter of fact. And I hate to fast forward a little. Um, I want to get to your family. But what also was very surprising is the forgiveness, the forgiveness that you and even your country and the leader, the president today uh, of your country has allowed them, you know, if they're sincerely sorry, you know, they expect people to give forgiveness to these criminals. It's true. Yeah. For murderers, me. not criminals. I'm sorry, murderers. That's true, right? True, completely, yes. Yes, I did. And uh, I mean, I can say more about that later. I mean, whenever you want me to say, but forgiveness, you know, I still remember the moment I felt as if like I'm free in my heart from being obsessed with them. I'm free from wishing them anything bad. I, I knew my journey was taking me long to understand what life is, what is their actions, what is causing it, why can they do this? And I wanted to understand me. And the moment I understood the actions are theirs, I don't need to compete with evil. If they do evil, I don't need to be like them. It was like a moment came and I felt freedom. And I remember thinking, it must be this what they call forgiveness. Because it was, it was a journey to get there. And it felt freedom. It felt like peace. Somebody's actions are not going to rule how I feel. So, but what's confusing is, it sounds easy. I mean, it's hard for me to forgive the coffee shop if they don't have my muffin that day. I want to burn it down. You know, it, it's a joke, but I mean, I, you know, we, we're so spoiled. My point is we are so spoiled. How do you, how does somebody forgive, especially, you know, and of course we can learn from you because you actually knew who killed your brother, Damansine, and you even know who killed your mom and you got the details of how they killed and they cut your brother's head. I'm sorry to be graphic, but again, it's in the book. I want people to understand because your brother, Damansine, was such a smart boy and went to university and they knew that and they said, let's see how smart you are at they, as they cut his head and left him to die. And you, in the book, you say in the book that these were people that were friends that you guys knew that came around the house. How can they turn on him? so swiftly yes and so then how do you turn around and forgive that that's what's so difficult for people to understand how yes and that was the journey to forgive you know i think it's mother teresa she used to say forgiving all is understanding all is forgiving all 
Because sometimes we don't understand. And I was angry. I remember being so angry. I would think, when I go out, I'm going to revenge my family. And I thought about things I can't even really do. But when you're angry, you become sick. You become obsessive. Especially when somebody have heard you and you know them. I was like, I will become a soldier, not to protect the country as we support, you know, at least they do. I will fly planes and I will throw grenades all over the country because I was so mad. And I would be so mad that my heart would be beating faster out of anger. And my blood would be running faster out of, out of anger. And I remember one time, I would ask God to give me a miracle because it was not like a miracle I was asking. I asked for help. And I needed to know, is really God real? One time, the killers came to, to, to search. And there were three to 400 people. I saw them outside of the window. And I thought there were 1,000. It was so for people listening, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want for people listening, she was hiding in a bathroom with one tiny little window. So there was a window in there covered by a cloth. And the reason why she was hiding there, Amakali, was because the pastor had this little bathroom that nobody knew about. And yes. Amakali was smart enough to tell him to move the dresser or the armoire or this big cabinet in front of the door. So every time they came, it was the interahamwe. Did I say it right? Interahamwe? Yeah. Every time they came to raid the pastor's house because they heard that there were Tutsis there days before, they kept going there to see if there was anyone hiding. They would raid the place. So you heard through those thin walls what they were saying. Yes, we heard from the window. We, you know, because again, the first time I saw them, I saw them through the window. I can see outside. You know, Rwanda is a very good weather, so we don't have too much thick walls. So anyway, I went out, I looked outside, I knew they were coming, they were coming to kill us. This was a four bedroom house. So there was no way to run. And I remember, again, I had two voices over my shoulders. N nothing too strange, the things we, we go through when we're facing a challenge. One voice was like, open the door. They're going to find you anyway. And another voice was like, do not open the door. Ask God to help you. You never, you, do you know who God is? God is almighty. Do you know what almighty means? It means he can do anything. And anything means, even if they open the door, they won't find you. They won't see you if God wants. So I remember in that split of a second, I remember having to, do I deal with the voice that sounds like me, being reasonable, open the door, end it? They are here already. They had machetes. They were dressed in banana leaves. They had all kinds of arms. And then I, I knew it was going to be over. But I remember having to choose a voice. And I remember turning to the nicer voice in me. That showed me that there is still hope. It's not over. And I remember asking God, if you exist, if there's somebody who created me, if there's somebody who, who controlled my breath, and this time not as a Catholic, not as a Christian, just a creator to the one who, who have created it. If you put all this together, you must know me. And if you know me, please let us door room. That day they didn't find the door of the bathroom before I, I told the man to put the wardrobe. They came up to the door, touched the handle, and before he opened, the man told us, he's like, I was sweating, I was shaking. He turned around and he left, one of the killers. They have made a circle around the house, I mean, a small house, four bedrooms, so that no one jumps out of the window. But when the man told us, I remember thinking, God, I don't know who you are. I might never understand everything about you, but for sure, I will seek you all my life. And that's the time he gave me the Bible and I started to read. I was because sure. you asked the pastor for the Bible. 
pastor would right you asked you asked the pastor when he would come at night he would only come to you once in the evening sometimes and he'd bring you scraps of food because he couldn't even buy extra food because then they would be on to him that you know he was hiding some tootsies in the house so the pastor would come in one night you asked him for the bible i'm sorry continue and he didn't mentor his children so they didn't know we're there so he couldn't cook with 10 children in the house Right. So, so the pastor had you hiding in the bathroom with nobody else knowing you were there. Eventually, he told some of his children, but in the beginning, he was the only one that knew you were there. So he had to hide it from his children and everybody else in the house. We couldn't move. We, we couldn't even to flush the water of the bathroom. We had to wait until somebody is flushing the water in the next bathroom, which we were surprised because we came from a poor area. I'm like, they have a second bathroom? You know? <laughs> right, they have two bathrooms. <laughs> I always laughed at that part. I also laughed at the pastor. I want to get back to one of your things in the book, but I always laughed at the pastor who, uh, uh, the pastor that you were hiding in, 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 whose house you were hiding in. He was almost like a Saturday Night Live parody. You would be telling Tim, well, maybe I hear they're coming to save us. It's going to stop. And he would say things like, no, 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 they're coming to kill you. Just be quiet. Stay in there and pray that you make it through tomorrow. Like he would say these crazy things, like no matter what you would say when the French came and say, we want to go to the French, he would say to you, no, it's just, it's just lies. They're going to kill you. Just keep quiet and pray you make it through the night. Thank you for getting that because I don't know many people have mentioned that, that kind because yeah, he was. And I remember the first time I put, told him to put a wardrobe, he actually told me, like, you know, then they will really be mad if they find you after the wardrobe. <laughs> how mad can they get? Um, how much more mad could they be? They're coming into the homes with machetes and spears and chopping people's limbs. They're going to be more mad than that? <laughs> what more can they do to us more than killing us? But so, you begged him. I went on my knees. It's the first time in my life I still remember that image. I went on my knees, which I never do for a human being. And I'm like, please. And I had very short, I can speak like two, three words. I can't talk. But that time I remember taking a chance and I'm like, you don't know what we're leaving, please. And he's like, okay, fine, fine. And because the other women in the bathroom were motioning to yes, yes, listen to her with their hands. Yes, yeah. They were the motioning. Fine, fine. And you then, guys couldn't talk. You guys had to learn to read lips. You couldn't talk, you, so you had to read lips. You were in the bathroom, couldn't use the shower, and could only flush the toilet when the other toilet was being flushed in the night you had to wait. And this went on for 91 days. I want to read a part from the book. After time, like rice, rice, going over the shower. So you had lice uh, all over. You were in the same clothes for 91 days, the same same wherever you when practically sitting on top of each other and you would take turns standing up or is that correct to move by the time you left the bathroom i know you were all skin and bones you you know you had all cracked lips and you were all on the brink of being very sick yes we, we were sick really i remember when i went in i was 115 pounds i came out six five pounds Every and you're t and you're tall how tall are you i am five eight you're 5'8", you're tall. So it's for people listening, the Tutsis were recognizable because they were taller and also had thinner noses. And the Hutu tribe were generally smaller, shorter, and had wider nose, correct? Yes. So it wasn't just belonging to the tribe that you also can see a little bit. Yes, and that's how they place you in a tribe. You didn't really know. 
felt like you are that. Okay, fine, I'm with that. You know, you don't know. So you went in 110 pounds and 90, 91 days later, you came out 65 pounds. Yeah. I want to read this in the book. I heard the killers call my name. They were on the other side of the wall and less than an inch of plaster and wood separated us. Their voices were cold, hard, and determined. She's here. We know she's here somewhere. Find her. Find Amakuli. There were many voices, many killers. I could see them in my mind, my former friends and neighbors, who had always greeted me with love and kindness, moving through the house, carrying spears and machetes and calling my name. Yeah. I mean, you didn't live through that for one night. You lived through that for 91 days because they kept coming back, right? They kept coming back to find you. So the first time they came, as I was, you know, when they came, and, and I remember asking God, if you are there, don't let find the, them find the door of the bathroom. They came out the door and left. So the man told us later, they even went in a, in a suitcases to find if this baby's hiding. They went in every room, under the beds, in the closet, in the ceiling. So to me, when he told me that, it was then I realized, there's a God. I'm not alone here. And I don't even have to speak. I can think. I can talk to him from inside. So I started to pray. And that's really when the conflict between forgiveness and not forgiving was there. I was angry. How do I get to that? How do I, how do I forgive? But the more I felt I was not forced at all to forgive, but what I felt was the more reason why to hate, the more pain I felt. Emotions hurt me so bad. One emotion was hurting me was fear. Just to think about when they come, what if they find us? And I would feel my stomach on fire. And then I would feel anger. And then my headache, I would have a headache. I would have a stomach ache. I'm like, I can't take these emotions. But how do you deal with them? And one of them was anger. I remember reading the Bible and I would read things like, uh, pray for those who hate you. I'm like, no way. Close the page. And I will go to another word, another page. Uh, forgive. How many times? Seven, seventy times. No, I can't do that. And you don't know what we're going through. But, again, but do you think that's what God meant in the Bible? Do you think to forgive people that are outside with machetes trying to kill you right then and there? You know, I didn't really understand, but from I wanted just to be simple. From the moment I asked him not to let them find the door of the bathroom and it actually happened. I'm this is the only person I can count on. People outside, they can disappoint you. So I wanted to kind of relate. God proved to me that what he said, he really means it. And then what I realized was that there's many things are said, but it's not exactly what he means. He means that, but more. So what is forgiveness? When he said, pray for those who hate you. So after time, I realized the power of prayer. Like even when I was asking how things can be given, which I take as a prayer tool, then I said, hmm, so there's a power in prayer. If I pray for people who hate me, that means I can pray for their hearts to change, to stop hating. So then if they stop hating, they will not be causing this much pain. I'm like, okay, so that's what he means, pray for those who hate you. It's not praying for them like, yeah, prosper in your hatred. Continue. Right, he's not asking you to pray for them that he killed, that they kill everyone and, and get rich. <laughs> it's pray that they have love in their hearts. It's praying that they can see other people as themselves. And it's, it's also cathartic, right? I think also it's the praying, it becomes cathartic. It's, you're not really praying for them, but by praying for them, you're healing yourself. I'm healing myself, 
And that power I believe in, I think can go to them. Then they can kind of, you know how sometimes we are blind and then you look back, you're like, what were I thinking? You know, I think like my prayers, that power wishing their hearts to be elevated, either I can wish somebody to change and be a good person or I can wish them to hurt and feel the pain they cause me. So that's where I move from want them to hurt to I wish you can see the light. Just like Mandela, you know, what do we saw in South Africa? He, he's like, we believe in people. Gandhi, we believe people can be good. We believe people are good at heart, but they get mislaid. They wish things that actually hurt them too. So let's pray for them and teach. But I, me believing in the power of prayer, I truly knew that it can go to them. Whatever made that these killers, murderers, as you, you said very righteously so, not find that door. I knew that power can go in their hearts if I continue to elevate there. Forgiveness became a, such a way that was not like what I think before. Like I'm giving them a gift or I'm thinking they're right now I'm wrong by. It was very confusing before. Forgiveness really is, is believing in them too. But why protecting myself? This is not like, oh, let me go out. Since I forgave you, we are friends again. We, you have to be wise. We have to discern. After 91 days, the French army finally came in and they were going to rescue the Hutus. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it was the French army is because uh, Rwanda was colonized by the French. Yes. So finally, the French came in. They came, I think, through Kigali, right? Kigali first, and they made their way up to Mataba, but that took a while. And by the time they, you heard on the radio, because the pastor would have his radio on in the bedroom, and you would hear it from the bathroom. So you knew that the French were coming. You finally yeah. told the pastor that the French are coming, you want to you wanna go to the French. And that's when he told you, and I laughed in the book, he's like, no, 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 it's all, a, it's, it's, it's a ploy, they're just going to kill you. Go back in the bathroom and be quiet and hope you live through the night. I mean, with the lump in my throat, I was laughing. I'm like, is he for real? This is crazy. It's, it's, like, it's like a parody. But he eventually, you convinced him again, Immaculate, you were like the spokesperson for everybody in that bathroom. I really felt that way too. I was like, right now, I realize how the, the world was mad. I am not going to shut down the voice in my heart anymore. If I think things right, I'm going to say it. No regret. I wish I had said that. So I, I was very much speaking, and I told him, don't worry. Even if they kill us, they will shoot us. They are following us. They want to cut us in pieces. He's well, like, you said that to him. You said, we don't want to be raped, degraded, and then chopped up. We'd rather be shot in one piece. And the other women agreed with you, again, waving their arms around, saying, listen to her. And he finally agreed because you pleaded with him to do that. And when he finally got you out of the bathroom in the middle of the night, you would think that would be it and they would escort you. They left you halfway in the middle. Meanwhile, along the way, tell me, bodies all over Rwanda. All over, yes. So he, he, he took us to the French soldier, which on the way, just like 10 minutes walk, we met the killers. They came to their face, our face. They almost killed us. But then, by the grace of God, they told we were Hutus, because no Tutsi can walk, then, you know, three months later. So we went to the French, and they took us, and then the French took us to the new government where it was safer, and they dropped us in the middle of the, the killers. And I remember the soldiers were like, and really many great men, many great men. They were so sad. They were like, we are soldiers. We respect orders. They just told us to leave you.
So I want to explain to people, even though they have to read the book, guys, you have to read Left to Tell. It's a great book. But what she's saying is that when they finally, um, when they finally got these people, when when Amakuli and the other women finally made it to the French, and they were supposed to, you know, transport them to a safer place, they got orders to leave them and go back. So they dropped off these women right in the middle of all the Hutus. They dropped them. They got out of a tank. You were in a tank, right? It was a truck, like a truck that was, was like a truck where there a was truck. a truck. Yeah. And they let you out and you pleaded with him and he still let you out and went back to the base. And then you, you were the one because you had a person in a wheelchair there with you. So you, she got stuck. So you were the one that had to run now and get help from the French. But yeah. then when you finally got help and went to the French, they thought you were a Hutu. Yes, that actually, the, the, the new people I went to were people from my tribe, Tutsis, and Hutu, who were against the genocide, who were away from the country in Uganda, and they fought their way to come to rescue the country. So the French were helping us in the side of the Hutu. And when we got now to the side of where Tutsi and, and Hutu moderate were, we, 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 I took these two men, I remember, when in the middle of the killers. So before we left to go to the nice, to the safer place, I remember one of the killer came to my face with a machete in his heart. And he looked at me face to face like this close. And he's like, you are the only one we're missing in your family. And I remember my father had given me a rosary when we were separating. I took it and I squished it in my hand. I'm like, God, you will not save me from the bathroom and come to kill me here. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the part that I couldn't believe. You made 91 days. You were what? 300 yards away maybe from from the french people and now he's threatening to kill you and in the book i remember you saying oh no not again no yeah you, you can't be so i looked at him and somehow i really was praying for him i didn't want to accept that he's evil he's a human being like me he must know what it is to love he's choosing to be bad but he can choose to do good too so i was almost like, like devil get out of his, his him he's a good man he has a mom, he has a dad, he must know what it is to love. And all of a sudden, the man turned around. So I took these two guys, we were together like 50 refugees in the middle of the killers, and I pushed them, like, let's go. They're like, well, yeah, let's just go. So we went to the safer place of Tutsi and Hutu Moderate, and when we got there, they like, they had a gun over our head. They said, there's no Tutsi alive these days. You cannot be. That was a time in my life I gave up. I said, you know what? I have been fighting too long. I am not anymore even praying. Fine, kill me. <laughs> and we still on our knees. We have, you know, we have guns of our head. And then all of a sudden, again, to see how God, I really encourage people who believe in God, please hold on and get to know who is God. Because sometimes people tell us God in many different ways. And then we're scared. You know, he's a father. He's a love. So anyway, all of a sudden, I saw a man coming with twin people and pushing one of the soldiers because they don't know me. All of a sudden, the, the soldier is my mom's student in his primary school. So he knew my mom, he knew me, he knew his, of course, he wanted to know about his parents. Out of this whole country where were soldiers all over, the man was positioned where I needed him most. And I remember he pushed them with a the gun. He was like, leave her. And he started to ask me, where is mom? Where is your dad? But everyone died. Where is Damasen? He died and he started to cry and scream. That's when they took us. They said, okay, fine. Now tell us what happened. Now we can believe you. So I was like, please, there's, there's more behind who are, 
a wheelchair and kids and they're insulting them. Maybe they kill them. And then they gave a car to one of the Hutu as a moderate, put him in a uniform of the, the bad soldier and ask him to go to tell them that he's going to kill them himself. So he brought a car. Where oh, so wait, I didn't, I don't remember this part. So they put a Hutu in the uniform and sent him to go pick up the people that were left on the road with the wheelchair and the kids. And he and told it was a colonel who wanted to kill them. He had been looking for them and he wanted to kill them himself. He packed them and all of a sudden, they're there. We run to them. Oh my gosh. So he tricked them and he rescued the rest of the people. And then you finally get to this, um, to this campsite where you feel safe and now everybody wants to know what happened to their families. And now you have to tell people what happened. But also there was a point when you didn't know exactly what happened to your brother and your yeah. parents. And yeah. you had to pretend that you knew in order to get the truth out of a friend that you Thank saw at the camp. Thank you for reading well my book. God bless you. Are you saying I'm like, you're talking like you were there. Like, you know. Thank it was, I had the chills throughout the entire book and here you are with the brave um, face saying, I know, I know what happened. You know, you can tell me. Meanwhile, you didn't know anything. You tricked him into it. And, you know, when he gets into the detail because he knows through somebody else of how they killed your brother and how they killed your mom. Your mom went to a neighbor who she knew very well, a Hutu neighbor, and said, you know, can you help me? And she threw her out of the house and then told the so told so I don't even want to call them soldiers. I'm sorry, I want to call them barbarians. She told them to go kill her out on the street and don't mess up the lawn. And they yeah. chopped her up. And this is what you had to hear. And you had to also give the news to these soldiers who had no idea what happened to their families, and you had to give them the same thing. Yes. And I remember one by one, I'm like, if I cry, they won't tell me what happened to my dad. If I cry, they were telling me one by one. They won't tell me what happened to my brother. And I'm holding in. I'm like, yeah, I know what happened, but I just don't know how it happened. And the man were like, yeah, your brother, he's the last one they killed. I, I just lost it after I heard everyone. It was so bad. My dad was also killed by friends. You know, he went to, to cry to the governor and ask him if he can help the people. And he said, you crazy. They shot him outside. And my younger brother ran to the stadium. And they killed him with 10,000 people. And my other brother was the one who the was, was hiding. And he wrote me a letter the day before they killed him. It is in the book, actually. And in the book, I put the copy of the letter. He said, if, if I go outside, I will, I will see you. If I, I don't get there, do not worry. I will go to heaven because I'm prepared for that. This is Demensin's letter you're saying, right? Yeah, that, that was the part I think that I almost cried. I read it to Brad. He cried because it was so touching, especially coming from your brother. It was your brother. It just shows the love and how you guys were brought up. You were brought up very um, nice. You brought up to really respect each other and to take care of each other because it was your brother, Damansin, that made you go to the pastor to hide out. It was your brother. And then he wouldn't stay. You told him to stay. You were pulling him. And he said, no, no, no. It's better for you if I go and I have to go help the family. Yeah, it's so true. He was very, yeah, he said, don't leave here. Make sure you don't leave. I, I'm okay. I will be fine. You're not want to leave the family. And he explained to you what they would do to you. And yes. he made you go. Yes. How do you get over, you, you can never get over that. How? I'm talking to you and I'm looking right at you. 
I mean, did you ever think if I knew this was going to happen, I would have killed myself before I saw any of it? I'm not kidding. This is something sometimes I talk with my friends or even in my own heart. I'm like, thank God. You know, sometimes people go to, to know their future in a psychic. I'm like, yes. why? You know, if I go and I know what would have happened to me, I would not have lived. I, I would not be here. I would, you're right. Maybe I would have killed myself if I knew what was coming. Yeah, you know, I, I met a woman many years ago and I saw the uh, letter on her arms and I know she was in the Holocaust. And uh, she told me how she survived was she was holding a baby and there were two lines. There were lines for people, which she didn't know what these lines were for. She just knew there were two lines. She was on a line with people with babies and old people. And then there was another line with strong people. And one line was to kill them and the other people was to work. Anyway, she gets to the end of the line and one of the soldiers, um, actually one of the German soldiers tells her to hand the baby over to another woman, a stranger, an old woman. She goes on the line and that saved her life. She wound up on the line that was not being killed, that went to labor camp. She had no idea. And she said, had we known what that line was for, because she was carrying her niece and her whole family, her mother, her aunts were all on the line to be killed. She goes, if we knew what was going to happen, we would have all killed ourselves right then and there. It's so true. There's a lot. Yeah, thank God. And one of the big lessons as I go to speak and I share with people, just to remind the people, please love today. appreciate today. Count your blessings. Your book has made me feel that way because I'm grumpy and I get annoyed easily, Amakuli. I don't know if Jill told you, which by the way, we have a friend in common for you guys listening. Um, I've known Jill for about 25 years. She's also my dentist and a lovely, lovely girl. We're great friends. And uh, she comes over to the townhouse a lot. We hang out. And she bought your book for me and she sent it to my house when she was over. And when I read it, I said, I, I have to meet you. We have to talk about this. And so, yeah, so I forgot what my point was, but um, Jill is amazing. And I want to talk a little bit now about, you know, what's going on here because you're a refugee now living in the United States. I mean, you hear now, I mean, what I find to be propaganda, I don't know if you do, you, do you, let's just put it this way. Do you see similarities in propaganda here as you did in Rwanda? I try not to watch news a lot because I feel like they, they easily took me out of, me appreciating today and then yes. you worry about what is tomorrow what if this happened i'm like wait I, I have a family i have kids to love you know i don't want to, to be sucked into this and i don't even understand so like we said if we knew what was coming would we even live today more than so i want to enjoy today i see since last year especially i see something that have changed in the u.s there's a hatred that you just feel like this is bad. You know, there's almost like a color that have changed, but I don't know what it is, what it can be. However, I truly believe that it, they can't have a genocide like what happened to Rwanda. It takes great organization, you know, people who organize it and have power, completely power in one hand. So I feel like it can't happen here. But there is hatred that is I don't like to see. Yes, I find that the pe person that screams hatred the most and says, or, or, or the, the person that screams the most about somebody else that they're bad, I find them to be the bad person usually. The person screaming the most and the one that's the, and to me is the dangerous one, not the one they're, you know, supposedly spreading propaganda about. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, most of the time, that's what exactly is, you know? Do comes, you think that America is racist? Racist. Well. As a country. 
as a as a country, I I can't judge a country fully. You know, I do travel a lot. I really have met many great people. You know, from a different race than me, who love me, who who actually would be quick to defend me if somebody would treat me wrong, and will quick will be quick also to kind of tell me that was racism. I'm like, really, is it? Because I have suffered so much from tribal problems. Sometimes I don't see it as a racism, but yeah, I do. I've seen racism. And the, the worst thing is, especially in ideas, you know, when you speak generally, like they are like that, or, or look at, as if like you're not fully human, you know, like what I saw in, in Rwanda. But a part of that, I feel like people need to be educated. People yes. need to, yeah. They need to be educated, but you know, I know that there's racism. There'll, there'll always be racism. There'll always be homophobia, anti-Semitism. But I, I don't think that America as a country is inherently racist. No, there's so many great people. Oh my goodness. I have been, I've loved people. I have known people. But again, some people, I really don't have an idea. You know, I, have, I take people to Rwanda, maybe for that reason, I take a group to visit Rwanda from the US. Right. Yeah. And what they get there, they go like, they're treating us good. I'm like, yeah, why not? Like, we need to be better. I'm like, okay. So in a way, I think that is, we, we need to keep educating people. And there are many people, many people can come from your own family, as you know. Many people can become from your own race, from your own religion, your own tribe, your own group, you know? Absolutely, yes. Well, there is hatred, but I, I, I don't, any hard hatred comes, and maybe that what I, I my heart, where my head went after I was able to forgive. I never wanted to judge everyone, right. like French people who dropped us in a in the middle of the road. Two of them were, wanted to go to revenge for me. They were like, "Take us to see somebody who have hurt you, and we're going to do it at night." They were more mad than me. And then another French person comes and like, you know what? We drop you in a killers. So it's so easy again to say they are like that. Yeah. But they're angels in the same group of people. This was this was the soldier that told you he was so protective over you and said, Amakali, you tell me who they are, we'll go kill them, we'll go kill them. And you told him, don't kill them. You have to pray for them. And he was shocked at how forgiving you were. But this is the same soldier that let you out in the middle of the road. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. So I want to ask you a question. I know you've been back to Rwanda and I know you've been back to your homeland. I know that you've rebuilt the house and people use the house to pray. Your, your parents' house that they burnt down, that they looted. Your neighbors looted the house and then burnt it down. And that was a house your father built with his own two hands. And when you found that out, it was, it was crushing. And this is when you thought they were still alive because you were wondering where are they gonna go now? The house that it took years for him to build with his own hands that was a present to your mom was now looted by your neighbors and burnt down. You rebuilt the house and you use it for everyone from Hutu, from Tutsi, whoever wants to go pray, the house is open to everybody. But how do you feel when you go back or come across Hutus, you especially know, ones that you know that were involved in this crime, in this? Oh, thank you, thank you. You're right, the house is being built, I mean, have been built and they, they go to have meetings if they want to discuss anything or prayer especially. And when I see them, you know, it's, it's really, I would call it a healing. I really don't have hatred towards them. Came out of the prison, the one I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, he told me he missed people he killed. So like somebody like that, you, you just, he, he, I really felt he was genuine. He's like, look at us. 
We killed 60,000 people from our village. Now look at us. We have nobody to help us. So when I see them, I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm telling you the truth. I think of the time when we were growing up, I feel like they were the only people who know me now, who know me as a child. I have many friends I have made, you know, after the genocide. Very few people know my childhood or were there. And those are the Hutus. So when I got there, I always have a party. I have for drink, for bread, we eat. And there are some people that are out of prison, right? There are some people that were released. But is that fair? You can still forgive them, but should, I mean, aren't they still a danger to the country? So the people who came outside of the prison were only people who, who would accept that they, what they have done and they can explain to people what they have done, you know, if they ask questions in a village. And only people who have done crime only during the genocide. If you were a criminal who does that, you will not come out of this genocide. If you did, they would almost accept as if it was a government that led you to do it and you didn't know, like you told you were like a military. So when I see them, I don't think them as a danger, really. I see them as people who are in pain, especially one of them who killed my cousin. I meet him a lot. When I go, they come to me, it's like, my children are hungry, would you give me money? And I really never felt bad to give him money or feel like, oh, I shouldn't. I help him, I help his children. Some of them, you know, they're going to go to school. They're counting on me to send them to school. So I, I, it really is a healing, I think I receive in my you heart. You have a lot of forgiveness, and I know a lot of people want to learn how to forgive, and even for things that are less important than what you went through. You know, yeah, we, we never have to compete with evil. You can somebody who can still harm you and who doesn't. But if you are forgiving and somebody apologizes, you actually can say, this person mean it. But if you still have anger, you don't even see that they're apological. So, yeah. I know that you have two beautiful children and you talk about them in the book. And one of the things I really respected about you is that when they do travel with you, and your book came out in 2004, is that correct? 2006, yeah. 2006. And your children traveled with you. You always told them when you would talk about it that they don't have to listen to it, that yeah. they can leave the room, and you never encouraged them to read the book. And you wanted to keep them as innocent as possible. And I respect that so much about you because, you know, me and Brad feel the same way about our kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't talk about anything about politics to them. They come home and they'll say things that we don't like that they hear at the playground. And we tell them it's not nice. Everyone thinks different. Everyone has different rules. And, you know, we try to bring back their innocence. So I really respected the fact that you didn't encourage your kids, but I'm sure by now they're older. I'm sure they've all read the book. And I'm sure they all know a lot more. How do they feel about Rwanda? Oh, they love the country. We, we and how do they feel about Hutus? You know what? They take what I have told them. I always tell them to not judge people and put them in boxes. If one person does wrong, not everyone is like that from that group of people. So they really, they play with them. You know, they have asked me things, of course, about them. Is there, who is nice? How do we know who is not? Like, you are, you are big enough now. You can look in their face. You know, somebody, just like they have to judge everyone, including their own friends, who is good, who is kind, who have changed, who have not changed. They have to, to, to use their hearts. And I never wanted them to know much about the genocide. They need have their own life to live. I want them to see what is around them and learn from that. And slowly they started to ask me questions. And I still remember when my daughter was four years old, 
that's when she asked me, mom, how come you don't, you mom and dad don't come to see you? Wow. How come then, I, we don't talk about them. I told them, well, then heaven. And then they're like, how come they don't come back to see you then? I'm like, well, you know, when you go to heaven, you don't come back, but you wait for people. It's such a beautiful place. And the little thing, she started to cry. She's like, mom, are you going to leave me too and never come to see me again? I'm like, okay, honey, we can now pray to God to keep us for a really long time. So, How did you get so religious? Was, I know that your family instilled it in you, but was it being in the bathroom and surviving that made you have more faith? Because I know there was a part of the book where you said that the women in the bathroom looked at you like you were crazy, praying all day. I really came to have a faith that is strong in the bathroom because there's so many things religious people tell us and then their life is different. So I remember maybe before I was more like, in faith to please my dad or then a priest but then a priest would do wrong and then i would get confused but i remember during the genocide i want the god i speak to in my heart if the pope does wrong is not me between me and god is a different relationship if a bishop does wrong that is his problem they're not taking me away from this person i can talk to inside my heart who can defend me when i can ask him I wanted to know the God who created me, not the God of everyone. God who created you, who, who does it out of love? Look how much you love your children. Imagine the God who loves you the same way and more. How will I deal with him more than what a priest is telling me I should deal with that God? So that, and then I saw so many signs, so many signs. All I knew was that to please my God, I need to remain in love. And the whole world are my brothers and sisters. I have to think of them as if they were my own brothers, like home. What would I do if my dad, my brother does wrong? Am I going to kill him or say like how bad and terrible? I might try to help him so that, you know, he can change. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. And I always say that, that you have to put your neighbors, your family, your neighbors first, the people around you, and you have to love them. I don't know if I would be as gracious as you at all in this scenario, because this is very extreme, but, but I admire it. And I was going to ask about your, um, I was going to ask about your uh, children. So now you're saying that your children, ha they're older now, correct? Yes, they are 20 and 22. <laughs> okay. And they do they still live with you? No. Yeah, they are still with them in college I, now. I love that. I love that. Okay, they're in college. They still live with you. And you still have a very strong um, you know, presence over them because they seem like they are very protective over you from when they were young. They yes. seem like they kind of know you went through something traumatic and they don't really say much about it, but they're there for you when, when you need them. They do. And we read books, different books, you know, especially when they have kind of good principles. We debate about them. What do you think? How will you deal with this? So we are really, I think, good friends. Yeah. Did they ever ask you, why do you think um, God spared you and yes. not the other people that prayed so much? Wow, that's a good question. You know, no, they never asked me that, but other people have asked me that question. Why? So this is what I think. Maybe because of my faith, maybe really actually i believe in heaven and heaven is paradise actually I, I love to hear one of my obsession is to hear afterlife experiences people who have died and came back 
You do too? Me too. I, you know, I always think about, you know, my parents, because I, I lost them when I was young. My mom, I lost about eight, eight, nine years ago, eight years ago, kids are seven, eight years ago, I lost my mom. So I always think that I, I will see her again. And that's what keeps me, you know, that's what keeps me going. So yes, I understand what you're saying. Continue. I'm sorry. I look at the many videos about afterlife, people who have experienced and who have come back. So I really think, to tell you the truth, that people who are like my family, they're in a better place than me. I think like you have to leave me behind so that I can do more work, maybe to deserve to go where they are. So oh, yeah, you're going straight to heaven. You don't have to worry. You took care of everybody. It's funny, my brother tells me that too when I'm very sad. He says, Richie, he always tells me, my brother, that um, it's beautiful there. You don't have to worry. Yeah. It's beautiful. He always, you know, tries to reassure me. And yes, and it's, it is comforting to know that. So I know that you travel the world making speeches. Mm -hmm. you, you help people forgive. You help people have faith in God. And you're not a hypocrite. You survived a, one of the biggest, the biggest genocide in the world. I mean, one of them. And you managed to go and talk to people and forgive. So it really means a lot coming from somebody like you. I, I love it. And you know what? What keeps me going? Because, you know, when you're a speaker, you are talking to people. At least we're conversing now. But when you talk, you're like, are they even hearing me? Does it make any difference? And most of the time when I'm signing the books, that's when people come to me or they write to me. And I will never forget this man. He told me, somebody have heard him when he was younger. And he said, after I heard you speak for the first time in 54 years, I was able to sleep in peace. And I was able to let go that anger. And I'm wow. like, what happened to you? How you processed it? I'm just so grateful to God that that happened. Because you're like, if my speech or my talks is not touching another human being, it's not useful anymore. So and another lady one time, she told me she was angry with her mom for 20 years. She said, after you heard me speak, I went home, I called my mom, we laughed and cried, and it was over just like that. Do you ever ask them why they didn't talk to their mom for 20 years? Like, I'm nosy. I'd say, why didn't you talk for 20 years? Yes, I know I did. She told me they had a fight. I don't, she didn't tell me what exactly. A fight. Was. In the fight, and she slapped the door, she never looked back. And her mom never called, and she didn't care. So they just fell off 20 years. And she told me after, like, to think that a fight of one day prevented my kids from having affection from their own grandmother. To, have, to think all I lost from my mom at the time, now, you know, and sometimes it's so cute. One boy told me, she said, he told me after I went to their school, he said, you know, Recently, my, my, my girlfriend broke my heart and went with my friend, one of his, friend, his friends. And then she, he's like, I wanted them to hurt. I, I was so mad. And he said, after he spoke, I went to her and to him, and I gave them my blessing. And I told them, <laughs> have fun. I am over. If this is what's supposed to be, God will help. I will meet somebody else. And he told me, he wrote me a letter, two weeks after you left the school and have forgiven them, the most beautiful woman walked my life and now I am the happiest man in the world. That's amazing. That, that is, is amazing. Because I was able to let go the anger. I'm you know, I always say that, yes, I think you're right about that. But again, you're definitely more gracious than me. But I always say forgiving. I save all of my um, patience and forgiveness mainly for my family. You know, friends, you can be gracious and bow out gracefully and be like, you know what? I don't need to be close to that person. I don't need to be close to that person. But family, you just have to take, you have to take your punches. You have to take your punches and you have to move on. 
And what's amazing about you is that you kind of do that with everybody. You seem like you just accept everyone. I try. I, I have been hurt and I, I and uh, I go through that in betrayer. But I, I really, I, my balance and my, my always practicing is to have the wisdom and discernment to know where the other person is before you bring them to in your life. Because forgiving doesn't mean that you want to make yourself a victim and you want people to hurt you and walk right. over you. So you can forgive them, wish them good, pray for them, but don't let them in your life to do the same way you. And if you have to meet them, make maybe the time short so that they're not torturing you. Yeah, everybody, right? So they're not torturing you. You're right. Everyone has a time and place, I think, right? In, in a person's life. Everyone's got a time and place in, in, in a person's life. In a person's life, yes. And some friends, and it means short time or big time, or you want family to visit each other. And sometimes their words can really put you in a bad place. I have one friend who told me, some people will pull you down before you pull them up. So yep. that's a great quote. Sometimes people will pull you down before you pull them up. Yes. And you're trying and you're trying to reach them, but you realize that you are sinking instead of, you know, being lifted too. Instead of trying to lift them, you're sinking. You're sinking with them. So I know you have the only family, uh, the only um, surviving family member is your brother, Amable. Yes. Thank and he you. lives and he lives in um, Rwanda. Yes. He lives in the capital, Kigali. Yes, exactly. He's a veterinary doctor. He's a veterinarian? <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course he is. You guys are very smart. I don't know what it is. I don't know what they put in the water for you, but you guys are all very smart. You uh, worked in the UN for how many years? Oh, I worked in the UN for four, eight years before I eight published years. Before you published your book. And you worked in the UN also in Rwanda, didn't you? Did, yeah, four years in Rwanda. And then, then four I, years here. Yeah, then I worked in the UN again for four years. And then my book came out, I had to resign. <laughs> well, I was getting so many interviews. And I loved the fact that I always love to talk to people about life. I think like you can learn so many skills. If you don't know how to live with people, how you to forget, to let go, the anger, to love people, is your, your skills can be useless. Yeah. So I said, I work here, but I wish I can work with people. Then I will laugh at myself. How do I work with people on the level of transforming the heart? And until idea came through my friends at, at work, they all told me, write a book. And I will laugh at them like, I'm not a writer. So one day I'm like, you know what? Maybe let me see if I can put my hands together and, you know, down on a paper and write. And it was a conversation. Couldn't stop my hands. Yeah. How many books have you written? Nine. Wow. Yeah, so far nine. You've written nine books. I have to get to some of the other ones, um, but people have to read this book, Left to Tell. It's just an amazing book. It's inspiring, and your story is amazing. And I have to say thank you so much for sharing your story and for spending the time with me. I know that you found your calling, and when you were in the bathroom, or not in the bathroom, when you were in the camp and you said, now you're alive, you prayed to God to say, where do I go from here? Please, where do I go from here? And you did. You found your calling. You found your happiness. And ironically, what you're doing is helping everybody else still. Thank you. So thank you for coming on. I love it. Thank you for having me. It really all beautiful things from about you. Now we met. I understand. I told Jill, I'm like, I know what you mean now. Why you love nah, me? Nah, don't believe her. 
I'm, I'm, I'm tough. Trust me. I'm shocked Brad didn't smother me in my sleep yet. You are very sweet and funny. And Immaculi Ilibigiza, you're just really a remarkable woman. Whoever knows you is so lucky to know you, and I feel lucky to got the opportunity to talk to you. And I hope we get to meet in person. I hope so. And I just want to say one last thing. I know people listen to, anytime I talk, I'm like, you know, there's a group of people listening to us. I just want to say, whoever you are listening to this, if there's anything, hardship you are facing, please remember, there's always hope. Don't give up. You know, many times I thought there's no way out of this. It's too late. It's too bad. And then the next thing I will be praying and life will bring me another, you know, light. And so don't give up. Hold on to God. Talk to him. Express your feelings, what you need. I remember many times I had to choose between crying that I have nobody or turn my, my tears to a request. I need a friend. I need this more than I don't have this. So I will pray for you all. Please pray for me. And I just want to say also, if I can forgive, anyone can really forgive. I was in a bad place, but forgiveness brought me so much peace, so much freedom to live and, and enjoy my life. Immaculate, if this is coming from you, we all have to take something from that because what you went through was the most unbearable thing to ever imagine. And it was not even so long ago. That's the crazy thing. It was very recent. And I look at you now and you're so well adjusted. So those are beautiful words. Have hope. Where are you speaking next? Next week, I'm going to Indianapolis. So I will be speaking in a, some conference. In Indiana. Indiana. And the following week, I'm going to Bosnia in Herzegovina. Oh, you're busy. So now I have to ask you before we go, um, are you married? Are you? I know you... Yes, I am with, yes, I, yes, I am. And with Brian? With Brian. We've had some problems, like every couple. But oh, you have? Okay. So I shouldn't feel bad that me and Brad had problems. <laughs> no more. It's normal? No more. I think, I mean, it's two people meet from different places. How in the world do you expect just to go like, oh, we were twins since the beginning. Right. And so you're together and um, everything sounds like it's the way it's supposed to be, what God intended for you, what the universe intended for you. Yes. You go through trouble, the world will always offer us a little pain here and there. But I think the attitude we have, it really matters, but especially comes to love and forgiving. And then, you know, mm -hmm. you're an inspiration. I'm going to stop complaining when the air conditioning doesn't work or it's not cold enough. I'm going to stop complaining about all the silly things like running out of almond milk, and I'm just going to think, what did Immaculate go through? What did she go through? No food practically, nothing for 91 days. So you are an inspiration to me. And you know how many people probably are thinking what I just said? After reading your book, you're in their minds. And if you can go through it, if you can forgive, and if you can have hope, we can have hope. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. And hi, Brad. Brad, she's saying hi. Hello, hello. Hi. Yeah. Thank you so much. So maybe next time Jill comes, you'll come with her. Yes. We would love to see you. We would love that. Thank yeah. you again. See you soon. Oh dear. Thank you. God bless Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. Bye. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you liked what you've heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.